Awesome. And even as the ushers are continuing to serve, we are coming up on the end of our series called Meeting Jesus. We have this week and then one week left. And I mentioned last week that we could very, very easily continue on with this series into perpetuity. We could just keep on going and we would find story after story of people who met Jesus Christ and in his ministry. And each of those stories could inform us in our own faith. And we really could just keep going. With that said, we got to wrap it up because I'm really excited about the direction we're going to be going in June. You'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks, something really very exciting that we're going to be doing. And so we've got to kind of close the door on this one. So we've only got one week left after today. And today's is going to be uh, based on the, the iconic, the uh, most normative, the perfect example of what it means to meet Jesus. In fact, he, this is the story that our artwork is based on as we were thinking through what artwork should we produce for meeting Jesus. This is the story that went, yeah, that's what we need because this is the iconic story. And so if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning as you have your Bibles, if you would open them up to Luke chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to grab one of the Bibles that are in the seats. I prefer a physical Bible, that's just me. But the reason why I prefer a physical Bible was when I was a kid, we went to a little church. And when we went to the little church when the pastor would begin to drone on, I would open up that Bible and I would read stories all through it. And I didn't even know Jesus. But when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit took all those stories that I had ingested and all of a sudden they came to life. And I had this bedrock of faith from the beginning. And that was just because I was reading the stories. And, and, and even as we're reading this morning, um, a lot of what we understand from the scriptures comes from the stories around it. And like each story has context that's built on by the stories around it. And so it's always good to have that in front of you. And so I prefer a physical Bible. So if you have a, don't have a Bible, if you have a digital Bible, that's cool. If you don't have a Bible at all, grab one of the Bibles that are in the seats right around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home. That's our gift to you today. We would just love for you to take that and be blessed with it. So take it take it home, okay? We're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, that's where we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, here's what it says. He entered Jericho and was passing through. The he here, of course, is Jesus. And he gets to Jericho, and he's not planning on staying in Jericho. He's passing through. In fact, just a little bit of uh, background of where he is and context for what's going on here. He is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and we know why he's headed to Jerusalem. He, this is the story we're reading today. Depending on the exact timing of it, comes one week before Jesus Christ is killed on the cross, before he dies on the cross, one week before. And so he is now, has his eyes set on Jerusalem. He's headed that way. And on the way, he's headed through Jericho. Jericho is about 16 miles east, direct east of Jerusalem. It's all incline up to Jerusalem. Um, and Jericho, as he's coming down, he's getting ready to start that long, lonely ascent to Jerusalem. Although I shouldn't say lonely. Because it's very clear that there's a crowd around him. Most likely the crowd is people who are pilgrims 
also on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and we don't know how the crowd gathered, but I would imagine as Jesus is walking along on his way to Jerusalem, that there were some pilgrims that were walking in front of him, heard that Jesus was behind them, and so they start walking a little slower. And those behind Jesus, who are behind him, all of a sudden hear that Jesus is in front of them, so they start walking a little faster. And before you know it, he's got this huge crowd around him. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> funny scene here, you here. And all of a sudden, he's got this big group around him. And even if you read right before this, before, as he's nearing Jericho, there's a, there's a blind beggar on the side of the road. And, and this crowd tells him to quiet down as he cries out for Jesus. crowd tells him, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Jesus says, bring him here. He heals him. And then the crowd starts praising God. They get raucous. So it's not only a crowd around Jesus, but this is a raucous crowd around Jesus. And he heads into Jericho, getting ready to head up that long ascent into Jerusalem. He's just passing through. Verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Man, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus means pure. It's a good Jewish name. Good Jewish name. This is a Zacchaeus, pure. It says here that he's the chief tax collector. And we really don't know what that means, chief tax collector. This is the only place that it's used in the Bible, chief tax collector. It says there's multiple people who are tax collectors. In fact, Jesus has a disciple who is a tax collector. But here we have a chief tax collector. What is really interesting, what we do know, is that Jericho was one of the hubs of tax collection. Okay, So there were three tax collection hubs in ancient Israel. There was one in Caesarea, there was one in Capernaum, and the third was in Jericho. They didn't have one in Jerusalem. Why? Because of the fact that Jerusalem was the holy city, and in order to not tick off the Jewish people any more than necessary, they put their tax hub in Jericho, and it was the, it was the region then was based out of this place. And the way the Romans did tax collection was ingenious, ingenious. Because you got a problem when you're administrating this massive empire. How do you collect taxes from all of these locations? You could send out tax collectors to all of them. But if you send somebody who's not from there, they're not going to know where to look to find the money. Right? And you need somebody who knows where the money is. So they did something entirely different. What they did was they set up these tax collection regions. And then they would do censuses and find out how many people lived in there. And they figured out based on that, how much should we be collecting from this area? And then they made a contract. And they said, here's, who, here's the area. And they let people bid on the contract. So anybody could bid on the contract and become the tax collector. And all they needed to do if they won the contract was they would have to collect the amount that the Romans said, here's how much we need to earn. And then they can, they can pay. Then they send that in to the Romans. But... If somebody wins the bids, so the Romans get not only the tax collection, but they also get the bids. And then for the person who's the tax collector, you got to figure out how are you making money. Well, you have to collect enough not only to pay the Romans, you also have to collect enough to pay your bid. Just basic right, business. And then you got to collect more in order to earn some money as well. And so... The thing is, nobody really knows how taxes work, do they? Like, I did my taxes this year. 
No idea. I had a software program that did the taxes for me. I put in a bunch of numbers, and it prints off 70-some pages worth of stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea how that works. I put the numbers in, it comes out, and then I send it off. And we have CPAs for that. And supposedly, it's going to get easier next year. Yeah, right. Nobody understands taxes. And the Romans had taxes not just on the amount of money that a person would owe for being alive, but they would tax like if a wagon was coming into town, they would tax the amount of axles on it. I mean, like, they had taxes for everything. And if, if you don't know how taxes work and the tax collector comes to you and says, this is how much you owe, what do you do? You pay them. And so tax collectors, of course, were sellouts to the Roman Empire. And you've heard all that before. But this guy's the chief tax collector which means that probably he has tax collectors who work for him. He may have won the bid for the whole region, and then he has different tax collectors who do different things, and all of the money feeds back up through to him. So he's at the very pinnacle of the pyramid scheme, although we don't call it pyramid scheme, multi-level marketing opportunity. He is at the very pinnacle of the tax multi-level marketing opportunity. All the money's feeding right back up to him. It's good to be at the top. And so it says here that not only is he the chief tax collector, but he is also rich. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus is the only one in the Gospels that comes to Jesus seeking to see who he was. He doesn't come seeking deliverance for him or for a family member. He doesn't come seeking healing. But this he's the only one where it says that he came to see who Jesus was. But he's got a problem. Problem is this. He's short. And apparently somebody had gone running ahead as, as, as this crowd is coming in, raucous crowd. Somebody runs ahead, tells the people in Jericho, and then all the Jericho people start lining up down the road. And, and so now he's got an issue. He can't see Jesus. When I was younger, every single year on my birthday or right around it, it would be a couple days before or a couple days after, we would go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we lived in Kenosha, 45 minutes to Milwaukee. My aunt lived in Milwaukee, and the reason why we would go was that there was a, a circus parade. And every year, we would get there, and, and there's several things that you would do. First off, you, the parade would start at 1 o'clock. It was a good circus parade, I remember at least, that there were elephants and tigers and lions and that may all be just in my memory, but I remember it, and I remember it clearly. So if it's just in my memory, I might need to get that checked. But there was, it was a really cool parade, and it would start at 1, and there were huge crowds, and so we wouldn't get there at 1 o'clock. Of course you don't get there at 1 o'clock. You get there at 7 a.m., and every single year I remember waking up so early in the morning and heading off to Milwaukee in order to be there at 7 a.m. for two reasons. Number one, so that you could be in the front row. And number two, in order that every year we would bring chalk with us. Anytime you go to a parade where there's horses, you're supposed to bring chalk. Has anybody ever done this? Okay, good. This is cool. 
You're supposed to bring chalk, and you go out into the middle of the road, and everybody draws a big circle, and they put their initials in it. And if the horses, as they're passing, leave a deposit in your circle, you win. Has anybody ever done this? You guys are weird. Like, I'm the only one in here, and Phil Rosano, the only ones in here who are not weird. Do it. Do it. Okay, anyways. So you had to get there early in order to get a good spot for the circle. You wanted it to be in the right spot, but the other thing was you wanted to be in the front row. Because if you're not in the front row, then you can't see. Problem with Zacchaeus is he's either late or late or something. He can't get to the front. He's behind, and that wouldn't be an issue, but he's short. And so he can't see. Now, when I go to a parade and bring my kids or something where I want them to be able to see, and we get there early, I don't go, excuse me, you were sleeping, and I woke up first and stand in front of them. I want to be able to see. No, I don't do that. My kids are shorter than me, and so I just move them around front, and they can see. And if they can't see, I put them up over on my shoulders, and then they can really see. But Zacchaeus is short, and so, quite honestly, he should have been able to go right in the front row, wouldn't have bothered a person, except for the fact that he's a tax collector. So as he probably tried to slip on through, I would imagine he got a couple elbows and a couple kicks on the shin, you're not getting in front of me, buddy. Wouldn't bother them, but quite honestly, you're not getting in front of me. So Zacchaeus comes up with a plan, because he's a smart guy. Zacchaeus is playing. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. So he realizes Jesus is headed this certain direction. He runs all the way forward, finds a sycamore tree, and climbs it. Now, that's not a very dignified thing to do. It's not dignified at all, especially seeing as if every Bible drama of all time is correct. He's wearing a dress. It's not dignified, but he doesn't care, right? He has a chance to see who Jesus is. So he climbs the tree. Now, here's the thing about this. The very best he could hope for is an anonymous visual contact with Jesus, right? How many of you have ever met somebody famous? Raise your hand if you've met somebody famous before. Okay, raise your hand. Come on, if you've met somebody famous. All right, here's what I want you to do. Everybody who's raising their hands, keep them up. I want you to lean over to the person next to you and tell them who that famous person is that you met. Okay, and it can't be your spouse because they probably have heard the story 40 times. So tell somebody else who the, the, the famous person that you met was, okay? All right, yeah, all, all across this room, people are impressed right now. All across this room, people are impressed. Okay, the most impressive one I heard was Pat Long, who a couple weeks ago told me that when she was a kid, she got kissed by Elvis. If your story beats that one, send me an email, pastor at praiseassembly.org, I want to hear it. She got kissed by Elvis as a kid. You'll have to ask her about it. I'm sure she wouldn't mind lots of phone calls asking about it. When I was younger, I used to be a caddy. I, I caddied at a really ritzy golf course in Chicago. And one day, I actually had an opportunity to caddy for a pro-am. A pro-am is a, where, they, where they match up the professional golfers with an amateur golfer who spends a lot of money in order to golf with the professional golfer. And that day I was caddying. And 
there that day was one of the amateurs was Michael Jordan. He had paid a lot of money in order to, to, uh, uh, to golf with a professional, one of his friends, I think. And so, uh, you know, to help raise funds for whatever it was that was raising. So I was caddying at this thing. And I met Michael Jordan. And by met him, I mean I was standing there in a crowd as he drove by on a golf cart. <laughs> yep. I shook George W. Bush's hand. And by shook his hand, I mean I was reaching over the top of somebody else who was also sticking his hand out. And George Bush went by and went, mm, and then kept going. I shook George W. Bush's hand. But the one I'm most proud of, the most proud of this famous moment was one time I was in New York City. Yep, New York City. <laughs> and we were standing at a fountain right outside Rockefeller Center City, 30 Rock, whatever that thing's called. And we're there, a couple friends were with me, and out of the door walks Norm McDonald. If you don't know, ah, oh, hallelujah. Okay, so I watched a lot of Norm MacDonald movies because he was famous for like three or four years in there, and it was before I was a Christian. <laughs> and uh, I watched some Norm MacDonald movies, knew who Norm MacDonald was, and we see him walking out, and my friend who's next to me points at him and goes, that's Norm MacDonald. And Norm MacDonald goes like this. Now, that shrug could have meant one of three things. It could have meant one of three things. Number one, you caught me, I'm Norm MacDonald. Could have meant, I get this everywhere I go. Or, you guys are now my besties. Which is how I took it. I didn't take a shower for like a month after that because Norm MacDonald and I are now besties. I was expecting a slow clap. All right, whatever. But anyways, I, he has no idea who I am, right? George W. has no idea who I am. Uh, Michael Jordan has no idea who I am. I saw them, even kind of made contact with one of them. But the very best I got was anonymous visual contact. What Zacchaeus is hoping for here is he's climbed this tree all undignified like and he's looking out. The best he can hope for is that he sees Jesus from afar. Anonymously. But that he would at least see him. That's not what happens. Because it says, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. All through this series, how many times have you heard Jesus knows you? How many times have we heard throughout this series, oh, oh, Jesus knew the name already. I mean, he not only knows Zacchaeus, he calls Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus is hoping for anonymous visual contact, and Jesus says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm coming to your house today. And I love that, like, Jesus, it seems a little forward of Jesus. Hey, I'm going to come and stay at your house today. And we don't know what stay means here. It could mean come for lunch. Most likely it actually sounds like the Greek word sounds like it's stay overnight. Like, I'm going to go and stay and you're going to put me up. I've never done that before. Have you ever done that? 
I've never done that. But for Jesus, it's different than what it's like for us. Because in this day and age, number one, to host somebody in your house meant that you had intimate fellowship with them. Okay? And number two, this was a culture that used social ostracism as a deterrent against sinful behavior. In other words, they marginalized people who were sinful to keep other people from sinning. That was their major motivating factor. And Jesus goes the completely other direction. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Because today we're going to have fellowship. He invites Zacchaeus to invite him in. And after Jesus says, hurry and come down, verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. He doesn't wait. He doesn't mosey on down. He probably took care to keep the skirt down, but worked his way down as quickly as he could. And once he got to the ground, he received him, but didn't just receive him. He received him joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Who's the they? The they is the crowd. This crowd, they're spot on in their assessment, right? Like the phrase that they say, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's completely true. The words they say aren't the issue here. In fact, if we just change one word in this verse, it's a fundamentally different verse. Let's just change grumbled to cheered. And when they saw it, they all cheered. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I'm sure there's no ramifications for changing a word in the word of God. Should be fine with that, right? No, we can't do that. It's not cheered. It's grumbled. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. The phrase they say is exactly right. It's not the words that they say that's the problem. It's the fact that they have a reaction to the words. And this crowd, how quickly they changed their tune. Go back to 1843, right before this story. What are they doing at this moment? In 1843, right after the blind beggar, who they told to be quiet, uh, gets healed, what do they do? 1843, and immediately he, the blind beggar, recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So they go right from praising to grumbling. It's like they have two gears. Praise, grumble. Praise, grumble. Like it's like they can't stop in between. And why would they have an issue? They love the blind beggar getting healed, but they have a problem with the guy who's a sinner being invited into fellowship. And Jesus makes an impact, and his statement has an impact on them. But it doesn't just have an impact on them. It has an impact on Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus' response here. What a great response. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
He received it joyfully. In a moment, Zacchaeus goes from being a taker to a giver. And not just giving a little bit. He gives abundantly. I love that because here's the thing. Levitical law said that if you stole something from somebody, you defrauded somebody out of something, what you had to do was you had to give that back to them, but not just 100% of what you took, 120%. You had to add an extra fifth on top of it because that covers the fact that if they would have kept that money, they could have invested it and got a 20% return, I guess. That would be awesome. I don't get that kind of return, at least not regularly. But anyways, 20%, so it's generous to them. But he doesn't do 20%. He does four times. In fact, Levitically, in the law, the only thing that like would be more than this is if you stole somebody's cow. If you rustled somebody's cow, you had to pay them back five times the value. And the reason why is that financially, if you stole somebody's cow financially, they would be utterly ruined. So he gives back four times. <laughs> Very first tax refund. If I got four times what I paid in on taxes over the top of what I owed, if my refund was four times overpayment, dude, I would pay all of my money in taxes and get four times back out of it. And why does he do this? Joy. Joy. Because it says in the very next verse, Jesus says to him, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Today salvation has come. When did that salvation come? When did the salvation, as you read through the story, when, when do you think the salvation happened? It's not after the giving. It can't be. Because if it would have just been him meeting the law, salvation has come because finally he's meeting the law. Then it wouldn't have said that he gave four times. It would have just said he gave 120% of what he owed. No, salvation must have come before that. And then what he did after the fact came out of joy for it. So where did salvation come? I would say it came in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Right? So he receives Jesus, salvation, joy wells up, and he says, oh, now I am a giver. I'm no longer a taker. The guy whose life, I guarantee you he didn't define himself as a tax collector. I don't think he defined himself as pure. I think he defined himself as rich. And he takes from the very essence of his being immediately, gives 50% of it away, and then says more than that, I'm going to give four times what I defrauded people out of. Why? Out of joy in response to what Jesus has done for me. And I don't think he understood it all. I really don't. 
But I do think that he got a little bit of what grace is, and as he got a little bit of what grace is, it overflowed to others. How do you think he gave back the money? About a year ago, I read an article that talked about the fact that there was a class action lawsuit against a company that apparently had been making phone calls for people or for cruise companies and were selling cruises. And all you had to do was go out to their website and put in your social security number and your wife's social security number and the social securities of and your blood type. No, I'm just kidding. All you had to do was go out to a website, put a cell phone number in. And if your cell phone number was on the call list, and I know we're not supposed to sue people and stuff, but this was my act in order to help people stop calling me. Okay, so I went out and I put my phone number in. Because at this point, I get phone calls from so many numbers I don't recognize that are just spam, and they're from this area. So if you call me and I don't have your phone number saved in my phone, I'm not going to answer because that's the way it works. Okay, so this was my attempt to help the world. It was a, I'm a giver, not a taker, okay? So anyway, so I put my phone number in. Turns out, and they said that you could receive up to $300 per phone call, up to $900. So I put my phone number in. Turns out I had been called three times, totally remembered them, was so devastated when I got those phone calls, felt like it was right. So I put my phone number in, totally did the whole thing. And they said, okay, so you can get up to $900. Got an email saying all of that. But then I had to send in paperwork to prove that I am who I said I am and all that. And after I sent in the paperwork, I said it might be like six months. And after six months, just about a month ago, I received another email that said, okay, so it turns out that it's not 300 it's, it's $3 per phone call. And because um, the only people who make money off of the class action lawsuits are the lawyers. Everybody else gets three bucks. That's how that works. But anyways, so they get a third of the total, and then you get three bucks. Anyways, not important. But then they said, now you need to prove that you not only have that cell phone number now, that you had that cell phone back then. So we need a bill from back then. And I'm like, for nine bucks? So I let it go. You think that's how Zacchaeus did it? You think Zacchaeus said, uh, fill out the paperwork, send it into my office, let me know how much I defrauded you, and I'll get that money back to you. Think he set up a center for people to apply? You think people have records of how many taxes they got taken from them? He's the guy with the ledgers. He's the one who knows how much he defrauded people out of. So what I think, I think he went to every single door and returned the money that they were owed. And can you imagine how those conversations would have gone? Knock, knock, knock. Kid goes to the door, comes and finds daddy. Hey, daddy, uh, the tax man's here. No, no. Hello, sir. Then he hands him a bag of money. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, it's four times what I defrauded you out of. You see, I thought I was rich. But I didn't know what rich was. Because salvation had come to his house. And when salvation comes to your house, it overflows to everybody else's house. That's how I think it went down. And why is that? Because Jesus said, verse 10, 
for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is like the central statement of the Gospels, the pivot of the New Testament. This is the point of the whole Bible. In one phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And remember, he's just passing through Jericho. On the horizon is his death, literally. Because as he looks up and sees the incline, he knows just over the horizon is a city that is waiting to kill him. And when he's on that cross, he will provide salvation for all. But on the way through, he's looking. He is seeking. And he finds not all, but one. He finds Zacchaeus. He came to seek and to save the lost all, but also just one. So this story leaves me with three questions. Three questions that I've really spent as part of this, this week in studying. And there are three questions that kind of turned over and over and over in my heart and These are the questions I had to examine myself with, and I really just felt like here's what I need to do. I need to take those questions that have been for me meaningful and impactful, and then lay them before you in humility, and then if that question means something or gets your mind and heart going, then let the Holy Spirit do something. So here's the three questions. Number one, do we receive salvation with the same joy as Zacchaeus? Do we receive salvation with the same joy as Zacchaeus? As soon as it happens, immediately, 50% of his money is given to the poor. I am not saying you should give 50% of your money to praise. Now, if the Holy Spirit leads you in that, I will not stop you. But do you give? Do you give of your money? Do you give of your time? Do you give of your substance, of who you are? Zacchaeus went from being a taker to a giver in a moment. Why? Because he understood and recognized the grace of God. And the ledger keeper, I don't know how much he understood of salvation, but he did understand grace because he didn't earn it. He's got a ledger on his own heart, and depending on how much he knows, he knows that there's a whole lot of red on that ledger. And I don't know how he knows it happened, but he could feel it. I guarantee it, because that's the way that works. And in a moment, Jesus just says, all of that is gone. Salvation has come. And out of that came joy. So do we receive salvation in the same way as Zacchaeus? None of us could come to God. We couldn't make it on our own. I couldn't. If not for Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit bringing me, I couldn't have come to him. It's the same for each and every one of you. Do you know there are people today 
who cannot come to church unless someone goes and drives and picks them up. And yet we are hurting for van drivers. Does our salvation overflow? And we have a desire to not just have one church van that goes. We have a desire to have many buses. can take 25 people and those who are handicapped. So there's some accessibility. But before we go buying buses, we need to know if this church is a church that has their joy and of their salvation overflow. Does our salvation overflow into other people's lives? Or maybe you were greeted the first time you came into praise by Marvin Woods. With a smile and a handshake, he greeted you. Do you greet the people who come in this door for the very first time? Do you welcome them? Make sure that they are, know that here in this place it is safe and we love you. Because our salvation should overflow. I mean, how did Jesus know that his salvation had come? Well, he looked at him, and it was overflowing. It's pretty hard to miss. Does ours as well? That's the first question. Second question, what kind of crowd are we? Because how about this crowd? They wouldn't even let Zacchaeus see Jesus. I mean, who's the bad guy in the story? I mean, the good guy... Jesus is the good guy, protagonist, probably Zacchaeus, depending on what you, how you see that all going. But who's the bad guy? The bad guy's the crowd. And I mean, this is the same crowd that was just shushing the blind guy until Jesus heals him. Then they're cheering and praising him. And then they get into Jericho. And then there's a guy who they don't want coming and having fellowship with Jesus. Jesus comes and has fellowship with him. And then they start to grumble. What kind of crowd are we? Because what do you think is happening while this crowd is grumbling in heaven? Luke chapter 15 verse 10 tells us exactly. Luke chapter 15 verse 10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In heaven, there's a raucous celebration and they're grumbling. But how about us? What kind of crowd are we? Are we the kind of crowd that because of the fact that we've been in the praise mode while we're here, then we shift down to grumbling when we go everywhere else? What happens if your neighbor walks into praise assembly and sees you praising across the aisle from them? Would that obstruct Jesus to them? Oh, excuse me. There is no way. This place is full of hypocrites. If your coworker came to praise assembly, what would their response be? Boy, I hope we're not a crowd that obscures Jesus. These people should have let Zacchaeus get in front. It wouldn't have even bothered them. They should have put him up on their shoulders. Me, except for the dress. That would be super awkward. But what kind of crowd are we? Last question. Are we seekers? We called this the seeker. Who's the seeker in this story? 
Because it says Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But what does it say that Jesus was doing? (laughs) He came to seek and to save the lost. And while he's walking through Jericho, he's looking at the faces. (laughs) Where's Zacchaeus? Oh, hey, Zacchaeus. He was seeking. And the way I think of this is, have you ever had that moment? When you're in the grocery store and your son's behind you and you're walking along and then you turn around and your son is gone. And your heart starts to beat. And so you look and he's not there. And so you run to the end of the aisle and you look down there and he's not there either. So then you go up to the next aisle and there's nobody there. And you go down to the other aisle and he's nobody there. And you see somebody you say, have you seen a little boy with a ginky? And they're like, what is a ginky? And I said, it's a blanket! And they're like, what? I don't know, I haven't. And you keep going, and that heart keeps beating faster and faster. Or have you ever been on the other side of it? Where you are the one who is standing there in the aisle. I have. One time my neighbor came to my door. Have you seen my son? I can't find him anywhere. Is he here? No, he's not there. Okay. Or one time I was at Silver Dollar City and I was in line and this lady, have you seen my daughter? She's got blonde hair and she's got curls. My heart starts to beat. Or does it? Do I just say, nope, haven't seen her and get back in line. Boy, this is going to be a fun ride. Or do I get out of line and search until I find her daughter? There's no way I would close the door in my neighbor's face. But do we do that to God? Because Jeremiah chapter 4 says this. God crying out, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. Verse 22, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are foolish and simple children. They have no understanding. God is searching for the lost. Boy, this is going to be a fun ride. I wish the line wasn't so long. Or do we get out there along with Jesus and let our heart beat in the same way? Because we can't do the saving. That's Jesus' job. It's the Holy Spirit who applies Jesus' salvation to their lives. They have to receive him. We can't do the saving, but we can do the seeking. We can seek, and by we, I don't mean praise, assembly, the church. I mean you, and I mean me. Because God's heart is beating wildly as he is seeking and saving the lost. And boy, if my heart isn't beating in the same way, then I'm just standing in line, waiting for the ride to start. So I guess that last question was, are we seekers? Because as we seek those who are lost, Jesus saves them. He's the only one who can. But we get to be a part of helping people to meet Jesus. (laughs) So this morning I'd take those questions. 
What has salvation produced in you? And does it overflow to those around you? Salvation came to one house, and it overflowed to all of them. What kind of crowd are we? Are we obstructing the view of Jesus or telling him quiet back there? And are we participating in the seeking, that part that we have been called to do? Are we seeking those who are lost in the same way that God himself is seeking those who are lost? If you would stand with me. What I love about this story is, I mean, there's so many things. This is the iconic, he met Jesus. He was just seeking to, to see him from afar and, and maybe just stay obscure. And yet there's no hiding from Jesus, right? Like, you don't just remain in the crowd with Jesus. And for people who came even this morning, Maybe you were just expecting to come and hang out in the crowd. But that's not why you're here. You're here because Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And his eyes are on you right now. And he's saying, hurry and come down. Because I want to have fellowship with you today. And the scripture is really very clear. If we want salvation, it's really very clear. It says that we need to do two things. We need to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And we need to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And that's actually our last week. Next week is the raising from the dead. The first meeting after the resurrection. Confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. So this morning we're going to end with prayer and even as we do that, if you have not done those two things before, this morning, during this prayer is the perfect time to do it. Confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. See, because all of us have a ledger on our hearts, and it's got a whole lot of red marks on it. And if we do those two things, then it'll be covered in red. The blood of Jesus will wash every single mark away. It's not by what we do, but it is only by grace. Salvation comes to those who receive him. So this morning, I would encourage you to, during this prayer, confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves the lost. And the Son of Man came for this purpose. And he, as he looked at the horizon, saw that grand purpose in mind, but he did not just keep going. He looked around for the one. He saw Zacchaeus. And he invited him to come and have fellowship with him. And this morning, I know you look through and among each and every one of us, and we can't get lost in the crowd. And there may be people in this room that would obstruct the view of Jesus. There may be people in this room that we would look at and say, there's no way this is true. That person's a hypocrite. But, oh God, as much as we are just seeking to see who you are, 
You are seeking us in order that you might save us. And so this morning we put our faith in you. We confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess it audibly this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. The scriptures are true. And it happened just as it says. And oh God, as we put our faith in him, we know that we can have salvation. Fathers, examine our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. Does our salvation overflow? Help us to hear that question. What kind of crowd are we? Do we obstruct others' views? Or do we help them to see Jesus? Do we put him on our shoulders in order that they might witness him? And finally, are we seekers? Does our heart identify with your heart as you are seeking and saving the lost? Help us each individually to seek those around us who are lost, to bring them to you, O oh God. We thank you for this, and we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus.